This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today for my 240th podcast is Brian Alexander to discuss his recently published book, The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. Brian, welcome to the program. It's uh, great to be here with you, David. Thank you for having me. Mr. Alexander's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, in the hospital, Mr. Alexander provides an account of Community Hospitals and Wellness Centers, or CHWC's hospitals' efforts to stay solvent between 2018 and 2020. Completed in 1936, the 50-bed hospital is located in the northwest Ohio town of Bryan, population 8,500. The work is particularly timely because rural hospitals that serve roughly one in five Americans are closing at a record rate. A record 20 closed last year and 136 since 2010. Currently, over 500 rural hospitals, or 25% of the total, are at risk of closing. The demise of rural hospitals is largely due to a combination of decades of poor or dire economic circumstances, particularly in Ohio and the five other Rust Belt states, and a healthcare provider marketplace that Mr. Alexander terms, quote-unquote, cutthroat. Not surprisingly, therefore, in the hospital, Mr. Alexander also profiles the economic circumstances and health status of several CHWC patients and their peers, and describes hospital or healthcare marketplace realities. For full disclosure, though I produce this podcast independently and without remuneration, dedicated listeners are aware ProMedica, discussed in Mr. Alexander's volume, is a client of my employer. So with that, Ryan, let me start by asking, uh, and this was not one of the questions I prepared, but it did occur to me, how and why did you pick uh, this rural hospital in northwest Ohio, again in the town of Bryan, I should say further, 50 miles from Toledo? Well, uh, it's actually kind of an interesting story. In my previous book, Glass House, I wrote about a town where I grew up, uh, Lancaster, Ohio, and what happens when... Uh, Wall Street uh, financial engineers descend on a town and uh, manipulate uh, the local employers. Uh, well, while I was in Lancaster, I learned that the local hospital is the largest employer in the town. I did just a little preliminary research and found this is common throughout smaller towns all over the Midwest, parts of the South, and so on. Uh, as uh, industries have faded, hospitals have become the economic backbones of many towns. Uh, I am a um, writer for The Atlantic, and um, I proposed a story about the fate of small-town rural hospitals. What, what is at stake if they go under? As part of that story, uh, I interviewed a guy, uh, the CEO of CHWC in Bryan. His name is Phil Ennen. Uh, the story ran. Uh, Phil liked the story. He called me up. And he said, you know, if you want to go deeper on this, you should visit Brian. Just spend a few days here and I'll show you around. So I thought, well, that's interesting um, because hospitals are pretty notorious mm -hmm. for not letting journalists nose around in their business, even if they're nonprofit or, or so-called public hospitals. 
Um, so I did. I went to uh, Bryan, Ohio. I spent three days there, met a lot of people, uh, hung out in the hospital. And it occurred to me that by writing about one small hospital in one small town, I might be able to make uh, bigger statements about uh, health in this country and, and why it is that we struggle with health in this country. Uh, Phil was amenable to that, uh, much to my surprise. He said, sure, come on in. And so I did. I spent uh, over a year basically living in Bryan and embedded in the hospital. Yes, towards the end of the volume, you actually note you rented an apartment. Um, so I, it- I, uh, one of the doctors at the hospital who runs the um, wound care clinic has a little lake house in a, in a tiny um, place about 20 miles outside of Bryan. And he gave me a great deal on the rent in return for some house maintenance labor. <laughs> so I, I, spent, um, I spent the winter shacking up in his, uh, in his lake house because he never uses it in the winter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So let's get to the questions I have prepared. And let's start with, the, uh, with uh, CHWC's uh, patient population because this is, uh, this is probably – your discussion of these patients is probably the most poignant part. I found of the volume. Uh, again, you provide several profiles in Chapter 2. For example, you introduce to the reader uh, Keith Swidehart, and you discuss his plight and his families um, through the remainder of the book. Um, and in fact, he, along with uh, uh, Phil Ennin, the CEO, are really the book's protagonists. Um, right. But feel free to wander from Keith, but uh, if you could comment on Keith's plight since uh, uh, his health history over this two-year period is representative of what you saw amongst this uh, patient population. Uh, so I think uh, we should start there. Uh, well, the, the people who live in Williams County, which is the county where Bryan is the county seat, um, have seen a decline, economic decline, over the last 40 years or so. And there are a variety of reasons for that, which I go into in the book. Uh, median household income is below the state average and significantly below the national average. These are, these are working class and often poor people um, who 40 years ago wouldn't have been uh, mm-hmm. poor, but, but they are now. Um, and they are faced with uh, lower wage jobs. The, the paradox here is that um, it, Everybody's employed. <laughs> uh, unemployment was very low during the time I was there, but people were working for $11, $12, $14 an hour. Their health insurance, uh, in some instances, were $5,000 deductibles. And so as one woman named Valerie, who I also follow in the book, uh, said to me when I asked if her family gets regular checkups, she just laughed and said, oh, my God, no, we have to be dying before we see mm-hmm. a doctor. And as it happens, uh, in many cases, and this includes Keith's wife, people are literally dying before they see a doctor. Um, Finance is a a big element uh, of why they delay care. Um, As I point out in the book, uh, uh, for a variety of diagnoses, um, for cancer, for example, different cancers, um, the rate of uh, cancers in uh, Williams County for most of the cancers, are about what they are in the rest of Ohio. It's average or even slightly uh, above average. Um, But deaths from these cancers uh, are uh, much worse because people are delaying care. 
And, and the real hook for the book came when Jim Watkins, who is the, the director of public health for the county, pointed out to me that people who live on the east side of Bryan, Ohio, again, a population of only 8,500, um, and people on the west side of uh, the town, and, and which is divided by uh, Main Street and therefore is two different census tracts, uh, people on the on the um, east side die of cancer eight years sooner than people on the west side. Now, this is a, an incredibly homogenous group of people. They're, they're almost all white people, uh, same ethnic backgrounds. The difference is economics. And so I spend a lot of time in the book discussing um, what people in your line of work refer to as social determinants of health and how health in this country really is often determined by zip code. Right. Uh, so thank you for that. I'll just add, although you don't mention the volume, this is the phrase uh, we hear repeatedly and more frequently, and this is Angus Deaton at Princeton's work, Deaths of Despair. Uh, just to add, you also note in your volume, I found particularly striking, and I have to say all, all this discussion I, I find is really, truly poignant. Uh, so uh, the state of Ohio has one of the highest death rates, uh, ranked 46 in public and public health spending, $13 per person. Uh, you note obesity and diabetes uh, prevalence thereof is really off the chart. Uh, you mentioned what median uh, household income is in Williams County. And then you use the phrase, uh, you describe uh, uh, coverage as many residents with high are with high deductibles, no insurance, or you say sketchy uh, insurance as well. In fact, I would say further that I, I, I would hope to think uh, this would be, your vine would become required reading for public health students or MPH students. Let me let me continue. Um, so these patients or this patient population uh, comes to, they come to care at some point, usually too late, um, uh, because of all these upstream problems in some. Relative to Keith, if you could just click through his, just to, to say, give it away, tragically, his, his wife dies. But then he's, right. he uh, suffers from, uh, he avoids care, he's untreated, and what happens to him? Well, Keith has diabetes. Uh, it was discovered at a young age. Um, he often rationed his insulin or skipped insulin mm -hmm. uh, altogether. Uh, this had the usual predictable um, results. Uh, uh, it, during the time I was with him, he has uh, most of his big toe amputated. Uh, this progresses. Uh, he has all of his toes on his right foot and part of uh, the exterior bone of his right foot also amputated. He loses vision in one eye. Um, and just recently, this is not in the book, but Keith and I are still in touch, um, he has had a fistula installed in preparation for dialysis. Um, Keith's in bad shape. Uh, and Keith has a child um, that he is responsible for. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked all of his life. He, you know, he was not, there's a common perception uh, that people who are in Ill, Ill health somehow deserve it. And it is true that Keith uh, was often what doctors call noncompliant. Mm -hmm. um, but his noncompliance was really related to the fact that he was very compliant with the American ethic of you works. Keith started working at 13 years old. 
and he always had a job. He was not a layabout watching TV all day, Mm -hmm. Um, although he kind of is now because he's now disabled, and he's now on the taxpayer's dime. Uh, One of the things I point out is what would America have saved on Keith alone if we had just given him insulin and some coaching uh, early on rather than paying for what we're paying for right now? Right. The, in, in, in textbook terms, these patients lack, uh, because of their economic circumstances or poverty, they, they lack agency, which is ability to make choices independently that um, uh, can obviously improve or allow them to live independently and or improve their circumstances. Let's, let's go to the other half of this. Uh, again, the protagonist, Keith, and, and other patients, but also now the CEO, uh, again, Phil Ennin. Uh, so let's go to, um, while the patients struggle, so does the hospital. And again, much of the book is a discussion over this two-year period of how they basically try to stay in business and what they're trying to do. And in fact, you mentioned they create a number of, of clinics or centers uh, to try to improve their margin, a uh, radiation oncology center, a cath lab, a, ge- a gastrointestinal center, a pain clinic, wound clinic, uh, et cetera, to try to um, stabilize um, their financial situation. But let me just start by asking you if you could provide an overview of the hospital's uh, performance in the market, and then we can get into some specifics. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, Brian is 50 miles to the west of Toledo. It's also almost exactly 50 miles to the east of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Both Toledo and Fort Wayne are dominated by big health systems. It's ProMedica in Toledo and it's Parkview in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, So it is sandwiched between these big whales. Um, In 2018, CHWC, the hospital in Bryan, lost money every month of the year. Uh, their days of cash, while still healthy uh, compared to some rural community hospitals, was beginning to decline. Um, Phil believed that by creating some of these center specialty clinics, he could keep his population in town going to him and not going to Toledo or Fort Wayne. Uh, To complicate matters, all the physicians in the county are now owned by Parkview out of Fort Wayne. They sold their practices, their big group practice to Parkview. And so their incentive is to send their patients to Parkview. That's what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do cooperate well with the local hospital, CHWC. Um, but, you know, they did things, one of the things I write about in the book is imaging. You know, they bought their own imaging equipment to try to get business from the hospital's imaging equipment. And so what Phil does throughout the book is try to navigate this economic landscape, which to my point of view had very little to do with the health of people uh, and more to do with keeping the hospital alive and functioning because he felt pressure not only to serve the people in the community, but he knew and felt the pressure of the fact that he was now the economic engine of that town. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Relative to who owns the, the physician practices, this is the classic uh, in this market, and that is uh, physician referral patterns. Uh, and that's crucial in to the extent hospitals succeed or not. Uh, so thank you uh, for noting that. Uh, let's let's uh, drill down a bit on this. So 
the, the ongoing debate, as I read the volume over this two-year period, is to what extent can they maintain and what can they do to maintain their independence as a standalone single um, hospital? Or to what extent would it be productive to the extent that they could um, rationalize it and accept it um, partner uh, with larger entities uh, in their region? Um, how did how did that play out? Because at some at one point, I mean, you're you're pretty direct in this. You're discussing um, uh, the board's view about potentially partnering with uh, Prometica, um, and let's just say, as you phrased it, uh, several board members were not at all uh, receptive. Uh, they felt they would be potentially quote unquote squashed. Um, uh, the board members. Uh, were not accepting of the uh, potential uh, unavoidable reality of the end of their independence being, quote-unquote, as you say, uh, inevitable. Right. Um, you know, their, their cancer care is a good example uh, of what's a way that they were trying to figure out how to leverage um, ProMedica and Parkview against each other. Uh, Phil believed that if he if he did it right, he could thread the needle between the two giant systems uh, and keep them helping CHWC without taking over CHWC. There was a there was a an effort to make a cooperative cancer care center that would be a Parkview branded center, but within CHWC itself, and so CHWC would. Um, be able to garner a fair amount of that billing and people from Brian would not have to go into Fort Wayne. They would have Parkview would supply some oncologists and, and CHWC would supply space and nurses and so on. And, and they would cooperate in this fashion. That still hasn't happened. Uh, the COVID pandemic um, put the kibosh on a lot of that, but that's the kind of thing they were trying to think of to do uh, so that they could avoid being taken over, maintain their independence, and yet not fully reject any kind of cooperation with the big systems. Okay, thank you. There are other one of the other several uh, market uh, problems they experienced, and and this is pretty straightforward, but very common and and not an insignificant problem, and, and difficult if not impossible to solve, and that is a volume being a volume purchaser, and, and the example you gave is implantable uh, devices, um, and that because they did not as meant do as many, say, uh, hips and knee procedures uh, or replacement surgeries, they could not uh, buy this equipment uh, at, at a price competitive with uh, Prometica and others. Can you explain that? Sure. So they pay retail. Um, they go into the marketplace for, um, you know, Stryker or Smith and Nephew or, uh, you know, a maker of a, of a knee replacement or a hip replacement. Uh, and they're going to pay almost double what ProMedica or the Cleveland Clinic would pay because ProMedica and the Cleveland Clinic had an amazing buying power. Little old CHWC in Bryan, Ohio does not have that buying power. And as one of the, um, um, purchasing agents at CHWC says in relation to a conversation he had with a sales rep from one of these companies, he said, look, do you not realize that if you keep this up, we will end up being a ProMedica or a Parkview hospital and we'll be buying it for less at that time? And he said, yeah, I know, but you're not on our tier. Uh, it, it's, it sort of makes no sense. So the economics of healthcare 
I'm an outsider uh, looking in. Uh, the economics of healthcare are unlike any other kind of economics that I have uh, ever encountered. It, it doesn't function in the same way as other economics do. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and uh, that's exactly right. And this is the famous Kenneth Arrow point he made in a very brief essay, but now cited still widely, uh, 1963-64, I believe, American Economic Review, where he said, healthcare is not like any other uh, business or industry for several reasons, least of which he talked about informational asymmetry because, of course, patients can't know or can't shop in any real uh, informed way uh, relative to, say, evaluating one hip product or other hip another hip product replacement, uh, for example. And then, of course, the other reason is the market is highly concentrated. Uh, you didn't you discuss this uh, in DC terms. Uh, these the, these market concentrations are scored. It's it's the um, Herfindahl Hirschhorn Index used by DOJ and Department of Commerce, and we know both um, providers, particularly hospitals, and of course insurers or payers in almost all markets, particularly in urban markets, are highly concentrated, meaning they have very high HHI scores and. Of course, that gives them uh, monopoly and monopsony, again, in technical terms, power. Um, let me right. let me ask you this question, though, and it did occur to me throughout. Uh, per your point about um, uh, the CEO's view or effort to, and we'll get to what happens to uh, uh, the CEO, um, the, the sentiment is we're the largest employer and we should try to protect that. Um, but the question is asked, there would still be, one could reasonably assume, an acute provider uh, in Bryant or, or in Williams County nearby. Um, so you, you get the sense that the board and the CEO, of course, for, for that reason, and, and also two personal reasons, want to maintain their independence. And that's sort of, I guess, an inherent motivation. But what's your sense about... Um, more objectively, should they, if the view is inevitable, should they try to strike the best deal they can with a partnering organization? You know, I, I, I debated about that a lot in my own mind because I, I looked into other hospitals around uh, Ohio that did do that. Um, there was one down in uh, Chillicothe, I think. Um, it, you know, it's hard. Uh, in, in a town, what would typically happen uh, in a town like Bryan, if, let's say, ProMedica were to take over CHWC, uh, those specialty clinics go away. Uh, and CHWC becomes essentially um, uh, maybe OBGYN for birthing babies and an ER, mm -hmm. um, which is what has happened in many smaller places. Now, would the people, local people, be well served by that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess they could have medical care still, but they would probably be driving 50 miles one direction or the other uh, in order to get a lot of the services they can get in town. I think that matters socially and culturally. One of the things that I, I hope comes through throughout the book, because it was also important in my previous book, uh, Glass House, uh, really what I try to write about a lot lately is what is happening to American community. That hospital does a lot more than try to take care of people's bodies. 
it is a centerpiece of the community. It, it, the community has already had 40 years of relatively hard times. It's struggling to make a comeback. As many, you, could, you know, this could stand for 200 other places all over the Midwest, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and a, and a lo- their own local hospital is a point of community pride and community society. Uh, when that all goes out of town, um, you have this similar situation to what has happened to retail in uh, in Bryan as as in many other places. You know, the local hardware store, the local bookstore, the local sporting goods store, they're all out of business now because everybody shops at Amazon or they drive into Toledo or or Fort Wayne. And and so who sponsors the Little League team? These, these may sound trivial, but they actually matter a lot, in my opinion. Um, and I think they actually matter a lot for health as well, because as we become more atomized, more disconnected, I think we see a decline in health. You know, I can't agree more. And that's one of the general, you use the word retail, and that's one of the criticisms, generic criticisms increasingly of the healthcare industry is that it is retail. It's transactional. It's, it's, it's making a purchase. And the, 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 the benefit of, of a therapeutic relationship with the patient, the provider under a transactional arrangement is gone. Um, so I think you're right. There's a profound, substantial psychological effect, uh, or benefit in play here. Um, not to be overly dramatic, but, um, it, it, for me, it reminded me of Brooklyn losing the Dodgers. Right. Right. Um, I mean, this is this is this is how the community identifies and defines themselves. Um, and I could say further, I worked at D.C. General in the mid 90s. Uh, that hospital was a one of the oldest public hospitals in the in the U.S. And it closed uh, soon thereafter in the early aughts. And uh, that was a substantial blow uh, to the D.C. community, particularly uh, the African-American community in D.C., which because that's how it was known, and that was moreover the patient population that it served. So it had a exactly. huge high psychological effect. Let me go to, since I noted, so the fate of a CEO, Phil Ennin, was? Well, um, you know, I don't want to give away the whole book. Well, just uh, let me say, Phil, he, okay. he was the cornerstone because he how many years did he work there in that position? And he was from, well, he, he lived he, across the street. <laughs> Yeah, he lived. He lived, Yeah, he just lived across uh, the little park there. He walked to work every day. Um, you could see the hospital right outside of his front door. Um, his mother was a nurse at that hospital. Right. His father was an important community guy. Um, so the, the, his connections with the hospital were really profound. I, I liken him a little bit to George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of held that position uh, within Brian. Um, it, but in his effort to, um, you know, keep a family ethos, which is something he talked about a lot, uh, there there came an incident of um, alleged sexual harassment, mm-hmm. not by Phil, but by a a contract physician um, uh, uh, on an administrator, and uh, the administrator mentioned this to Phil. Uh, Phil decided he was going to try to handle this a bit off the books, um, and it came back and bit him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the board, uh, and this wasn't the only reason, uh, but it was the primary triggering reason, uh, the board let him go. Uh, and this was 
this really shook the town because uh, Mr. Ennin, as everybody in the town r- referred to Phil, um, was such a cornerstone of uh, the local community. And he was recognized as a guy who kept that hospital going. You know, he took over the hospital at a time when they had expansion plans and renovation plans. They're going to build a whole new wing. They floated bonds. Uh, I forget how much it was, $69 million or something like that. Uh, and so the, the former CEO uh, retires, goes away, Phil takes over, and then you get the Great Recession. And he had to manage it through the Great Recession. And he gets a lot of credit for doing that relatively successfully. And people did recognize that. So when, when he was let go, um, that really shook up the town. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, George Bailey in Bedford Falls. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, let's uh, again. This is a uh, this is a chapter verse first person account over this two year period. However, the book uh, in its conclusion, uh, although I found it possibly not needed or necessary, but I had thought there might be uh, a few pages where you. You provided some overall assessment or drew some conclusions, evaluated what you witnessed, uh, but it does not uh, conclude in that way. Um, I'll not ask you why. I, I'll ask you instead, if you were to um, draw some conclusions uh, from your study and, and witness of this, what would you conclude? Uh, the, the, well, I would conclude the way that Jim Watkins, the public health director, um, really strenuously, um, something he said to me early on in my sojourn there, um, I described him in the book as practically grabbing me by the lapels and saying, I said something about the healthcare system, and he said, what system? There is no system. Mm-hmm. And, and I was you know, I'm so used to saying our healthcare system, uh, and the the longer I was there, the more I looked at it. There, there isn't a system. There is a variety of ad hoc band aids and bandages and innovations and um, regulation and legislation that results from lobbying and so on that has cobbled together the most Byzantine system of delivering care that I've ever seen. Now, the last chapter of the book deals with the pandemic right. and and the hospital's response to it and so on. I just find it incredibly interesting that Americans have embraced the ability to stand in line and get a free vaccine. That's socialized medicine. They love being able to get their free vaccine. I, I, think, I think that there is potential uh, to say, um, gee, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> Maybe this is not uh, the end of the world uh, if you get taken care of. And yes, our, we need tax dollars to do this, and it's going to cost everybody money. Uh, but my argument is it's already we already pay enormous taxes. We pay those taxes in the form of insurance premiums and deductibles mm-hmm. and doctor's fees and so on. We're taxed like crazy. We just don't call it a tax. Right. I mean, my my thinking was this is a perfect example of we're an economy of unaccounted for costs, and that's the cost in public health. It's the cost in these chronic diseases, the burden of these diseases, the cost of these diseases, the premature deaths from these diseases. And of course, the COVID pandemic brought that 
uh, to high relief. Um, you do say in the conclusion, uh, other than uh, noting the hospital industry becoming cutthroat, uh, you say, uh, and in uh, new American medicine was one big grift. Uh, economists would call it disintermediation, which is a fancy word for the same <laughs> thing. Yeah, would. yeah, of course they would. Um, and get credit for that, literally. Um, and then it, towards the a concluding of the volume, you say human beings were the object of an extractive industry. They were mined for their labor and their money. Um, so it's sobering enough. And again, it wasn't necessary to, to have a separate conclusion. Uh, you can see that uh, sprinkled through the volume. Um, my final question, uh, sort of formula, what's been the reception? Uh, I mean, I will say you did receive an outstanding, amongst other reviews, an outstanding review in the Sunday New York Times book review amongst others, but what's been your reception? If, if at all you've heard anything from uh, the healthcare industry, I, I suppose uh, you would, if, if you had, you might not have received, for example, a favorable letter from the American Hospital Association. Well, uh, it, interestingly, nothing from the, from the AHA, right. um, but I have been, um, I've been frankly shocked uh, at the the positivity which which the book has been greeted by uh, physicians and even hospital administrators. I've had oh probably half a dozen different um, uh, current or former hospital administrators, and so has Phil Ennen. Phil Ennen has shared with me emails from um, people who work at hospitals in Ohio and around the country uh, who have reached out to him and said thank you for being brave enough to pull back the curtain and let this guy hang out in your hospital. Uh, I, I, that, I did not expect that. I actually expected people to say, you know, what does this guy know? He's right. not an expert, which is true enough. I'm not an expert. Uh, but in fact, it has been really quite positive and much. And I find that incredibly gratifying. Yes. And let's hope, uh, since this is a policy podcast, let's hope policymakers give this serious attention and, uh, try to uh, address some of the numerous um, findings uh, it uh, you note. So with that, uh, Brian, genuinely appreciative for this review of the volume. I, I hope it, it, it continues to have success, and I look forward to your next work. Thank you very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.